Good morning, Restore. Uh, happy almost end of summer. Uh, so if you are just now joining us this morning, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is, turns out to be, always had been my least favorite gospel, I gotta be honest with you, uh, only because it's like, it's the most basic, like it's the most um, kind of straightforward, it's the least complicated, it's the least like theological, um, and yet I've really, as we've started to dive into Mark, have grown to really appreciate just like his kind of like way that he drives the thing that he really wants us to see home. Uh, and so this morning, we've been in the last couple of weeks, we've been hitting some really hard uh, like things to wrestle with um, as a church. This morning, we're going to do something similarly. So last week, we talked a little bit about what does it mean to have like love for our enemies? What does it mean to actually like lay our life down for our enemy, to like pursue the good of those uh, who may have wronged us, manipulated us, dehumanized us, mistreated us? Like, what does it actually look like to lay our, down, lay our lives down or love our enemies? Like, how do we pursue their good? Um, this comes out of the basic premise that is our gospel, that we worship a God uh, who loves his enemies, right? So, so there's a couple of things that, like, uh, really to think about when we think about this idea of a God who loves his enemies. Um, one, that means that when you are, quote-unquote, on God's bad side, Right? When you are, quote-unquote, dishonoring him, when you are not worshiping him, when you're not being faithful to him, even when you are living in active sin and rebellion, he's the type of person you want to rebel towards because he loves his enemies. There's irony in this, but there's also safety in this that I really want us to hear. Because I think for many of us, we spend our entire spiritual lives feeling like we're not good enough for God. We don't measure up to God. What, do I, what does God do with my sin? What does God do with my faithlessness? What does God do with all the parts of me that aren't enough? And the resounding answer all throughout your Bible is he loves, like loves gratuitously, loves extravagantly. Like the more that you dishonor God, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, but the more that you rebel against God, the more like he loves you, like he moves towards his enemies in love, with love. This is the overwhelming narrative of your, of your entire Bible. And so we get to the New Testament and we, get, we begin to see Jesus uh, love some of these people and love in these kinds of situations. Uh, and this morning, we're gonna see this again. It's a, it's a text that we've probably heard, a story that we've probably heard over and over and over again, um, but it's one that this morning I'm kind of hoping we'll hear with some fresh, like fresh ears, uh, a fresh lens. And the question I want to ask this morning, as, as I've kind of prefaced all of this, of like, are we enough? What happens when we fail God? The question I want to ask spiritually is, how do you know you're enough? Like, how do you know as a Christian, you're being faithful enough, you're being wise enough, you're being uh, righteous enough, you're being obedient enough, like you're worshiping enough. How do I know that I'm enough? Oddly enough, this is, and this is why church planning is so difficult, but also so beautiful, is like as a church over the years, we wrestle with this. Like every single leader that we've ever had at the church, like most of their responses when I ask them, would you lead this? Their, their response is like, why are you asking me? We're like, as a church, we wrestle with, and as we grow, and as we, um, I don't know, deal with all the ups and downs of church planting, you're like, are we doing enough? Are we enough? Are we enough? 
Are we honoring God enough? Is our worship good enough? Is the preaching good enough? Are our kids program good enough? Are we growing fast enough? Like there's all of these questions innately like packed into this. But likewise in our own spiritual lives, I think we ask this question all the time. Am I enough for God? I think this is the basis, if not the like underlying question uh, for most of us. Am I enough for him? Am I doing enough? faithful enough, righteous enough, do I fight and struggle with the own sin in my life enough? Like when I see him some days, he's going to look at me like he could have worked harder here, look at all the ways you slacked there, like look at all the ways you were hypocritical here, like what's that final interaction, that, I, that, that ultimate interaction that I have with him going to be? How's he going to define this for me? So this morning we're going to be in a text uh, that I think we've heard over and over and over again. And this morning, I want to I challenge us to listen with some fresh ears. Um, if you're not familiar with this story and you're here at Restore, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, there's lots of ways that we wrestle with Scripture. And don't feel intimidated if you're like, I haven't heard this story before. Um, there's a lot of us who probably haven't heard it before. Or we haven't heard it in a way that we should hear it. And so we want to wrestle with that together. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in the story of the woman who puts in just two coins into a treasury and Jesus says, this one, she's figured it out. You guys should all be like her. And the reason I want to challenge us to, to listen with fresh ears uh, is for many of us, I think we kind of hear Jesus' words of her being like, it's enough, she's doing enough. Like, look how much she's given. And we kind of feel like he's being sentimental, almost like a, like a participation trophy. You know, like, well, everybody gives something, right? Good job. Like, let's, let's, let's give her a round of applause. And yet, if we'll look closely at the text, it's just a few short verses that we'll be in this morning. What we're going to see is Jesus identify someone that he believes profoundly and completely represents the kingdom of God. And he's going to call it to attention all this way. He's like, hey, come look at this. Come look at her, what she's doing. Her heart, her posture is where all of us need to be. So, so let me read the text for us this morning, uh, and then we'll get started. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning. Father, would you be with us for these next few minutes? Um, as we wrestle with what it means to love our enemies, what it means to live into grace, what it means to have grace be our bottom line in every decision we make, in our whole ethos. Father, would you help us? We struggle with this. I struggle with this. Father, would you help us with our own hypocrisy? Would you help us with our own fears and our own insecurities? We need help with those things, God. 
Would you show us how to give everything that we have, knowing that all that we have and all that we can offer is always enough? Father, when we talk about this, would you help, help us not to be bounded in by shame or inadequacy, nor by complacency? Would you help us? We need you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Uh, okay, so a, a couple of things that I, I want to talk about here. Um, when we talk about grace, um, when we talk about giving, um, one of the things that I want us to really see and like cling to as a church is this idea that God gives us better than we deserve. Um, so I'm getting ready to post our values up here so you guys can see it, but like, there's three things that we cling to as a church. We'll talk a lot about this fall, um, but the first is Jesus. We cling to Jesus. We worship Jesus until we've had an actual interaction like in his presence, knowing him, nothing else matters. And why I say that like, this has to happen first is when we can realize, when we see that we are accepted in Christ, that he has fully loved us, unconditionally, this frees us to be at peace with ourselves. This frees us to accept ourselves as we are with what we can offer. You see, this passage that we're in this morning isn't about like who gives the most money. It's about who is willing to offer what they have. But the only place that we can ever get to where we can say, I'm offering all that I have and it is enough my time, my energy, my resources, I'm offering what I have, and it is enough. The only place we can ever get, the only time we can ever get to be able to say that and be at peace at that is if we know that we are accepted in Jesus, that we are fully loved unconditionally in him. This is why for us, love is the bottom line as a church. You cannot, like we cannot do anything else. You can't worship Jesus until you understand his love for you. You can't honor Jesus until you see the ways that he's loved you. It is impossible to ever do any of this without first having a real, actual, powerful encounter with Jesus and knowing I am enough because he loves me. I'm enough because he sees me. So the actual amount in my bank account, the actual amount of hours that I have to give in a week, those things, like, will work those things out. But until I can come to a place of I am enough in him because he loves me and he has rescued me, until we get to that space, all, we will struggle with everything else, including self-condemnation. Okay, so as we read this text this morning, and we, and we don't know the woman, what, like, what's going through her mind as she drops these coins into this offering plate, but I, I can promise you she's probably not walking in there with pride. Like, I can almost guarantee you she's not like, look how many pennies I'm dropping in today, or like, look how much I'm throwing in. So, so um, the way that they took offerings, they didn't have checks, so they didn't have credit cards, they didn't like, you can go to jerusalem.com slash give and, like, throw in your, at the temple. Like, they didn't have websites. They didn't have, like, if you were giving, it was a physical amount of money, usually a giant bag. And if you were wealthy enough, like, you had your servants bringing in carts of money. So, like, there's the very, like, physical display of, like, what people are giving. And so it's really easy very quickly, I think, in her situation to be able to look at that and go, you know what? Why bother? Right? Like she's probably in line with people who have carts full of money. 
I think this is where many of us actually kind of find ourselves spiritually most of our lives. Kind of end up in this place where we look around and you're like, you know what, everybody else can give so much more than me. They're so much more talented than me. They're so much more spiritual than me. They're so much less broken than me. They're not guilty of the things I'm guilty of. They don't have the same fears as me. So I think for a lot of us, maybe, maybe it's just me, but oftentimes coming to church I think feels a little bit like standing in that line. The person in front of you has got carts full of money. The person behind you has got carts full of money. You've just got a little bit. Like, I don't know. Do I, what difference would it make? Right? What difference do I make? Why not just keep it? It's not like they're going to need it. They're not even going to know it's there. I think for a lot of us, when we come to church, I think this is honestly the kind of dominating spiritual motif that many of us have. Does it really matter that I'm here? Does it really matter with what I bring in? Right? Like, I guess it matters if Justin's here because he's got to preach. It matters if Johnny's here because somebody's got to run AV, right? Like, it matters if... Lindsay's here so she can run kids, but like, does it matter if I'm here? I think for most of us, our entire spiritual lives, we really wrestle with that. And trust me, it does not stop there. Like, as a pastor, every Sunday, I'm like, does it really matter if I'm here? Can I quit? Like, it, it never stops. Like, it never, like, I, like, the point at which you will go, oh yeah, I should be here. I belong here. I'm good enough to be here. Like, it doesn't stop whatever, like, tier you are within the church. Which is why we have to come to a place of it matters that I'm here because Jesus has accepted me. And when I, when I can discover that, when I can really grab that, here's what happens. It frees me to give what I have without shame and without reservation and without this sense of like, oh man, I'm standing in this line and look how much the person behind me has and look how much the person in front of me just dropped in. So our first value we say as a church is Jesus. Um, the second thing that we say is from that, when, like when we can have that interaction with Jesus is grace. Grace is I'm going to give you better than you deserve. Not just not what you deserve, but better than what you deserve. This is the second thing that this woman does. She gives all that she has to a system that has marginalized her. So we, we may not quite see this, but she's a victim of a system. So Jesus just had, uh, we didn't read it this morning, but he's had some really strong conversations with some of the religious leaders saying, you've been put in place to help the widows, like provide relief for the widows, and yet all that's happened, Pharisees, all that's happened, scribes, all that's happened is you have placed larger burdens on the backs of the people that you were meant to rescue, that you were meant to liberate, that you were meant to help. This woman is one such person. And so, so one of the things that, uh, like one of the responses, like as we've wrestled with grace that I often kind of hear is, man, I don't, I don't know what to do with all my woundedness. Like if I started like really loving and wrestling with loving my enemies and like forgiving, like there's so much of that that's like part of my identity. It's part of who I am. Like, like if I really were to let go and love 
and like pursue forgiveness and give like better than is deserved. Like I like that idea like on paper, but also I have no idea like what that does to me as a person. And so what's beautiful about this story is that there's actually some empowerment this woman has, that while she is a victim of the system, like she's been marginalized, like she's literally one of the people that Jesus said, you know what, like you're placing burdens on her back, and yet she shows up and throws all that she has into the system. And you're like, wait, what? Like what I want us to do here is see like the virtue that she has, which is why Jesus is actually, um, we read quickly, I want to point out, he says, he calls over his disciples. He's like, wait a second. Like he sits down after having all these conversations, then calls his disciples over when he sees her do this. Like, this should blow our minds just a little bit. She doesn't come in and fill out a complaint card. She comes in and offers all that she has when she probably had every right not to. Like, she had every right to withhold goodness. She had every, like, her place in this system is one who has been pushed out and burdens have been placed on her. So, so when I said earlier we kind of missed the sentiment of this story, I, like, we kind of dismissed the story as sentimental. Like, oh, look, that's so sweet. Jesus is like, good job for you. Like, it's a participation trophy. That's not. Like, he's looking at someone who's actually been hurt by the system who continues to give better than is deserved. by offering all that she has. This woman, Jesus says, this is the one. She's figured it out. Come see what she's doing here. She's giving not what is deserved, but what is like far better than is deserved. And so what's, what's, what's both challenging and beautiful about love and about grace is that it's also empowering. Okay, so, so, so this is what I mean by this. Um, we were meant to uh, love. Like we are wired to love. We are built to love. Relationally, we are built in the image of God. We've been fashioned and created in the image of God. Your God is a God who loves extravagantly, is a God who gives. Okay, so how do we know this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, it's the reason that we honor the Trinity, especially at Restore. Okay, so a lot of times our, our discussions of the Trinity come around to like our intellectual like understanding of it. Like, let me understand. Well, how does that work? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. We worship them. Like, is that like water, ice, and vapor? Like three elements, same thing. Like, we kind of come up with these intellectual discussions around Trinity. Um, I think that that's actually a misguided attempt. Like, I'm I'm fine with those intellectual discussions. I also think that half the time. Anytime we try to explain it theologically or intellectually, all we ever end up doing is branching very closely to heresy. You guys probably don't know this, but like theology, every, I don't know, decade or so, somebody comes out and is like, I got it! And they write a big book about it. And then like 10 or 15 years, people are like, actually, that sounded really clever, but now it feels a little bit like Gnosticism or heresy. And, like, and so like, like thousands of years of church history, and no one's really intellectually grabbed this other than to say, we worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three persons, one God. That essence, that one essence, that essence is love, John tells us. And so, so I want to encourage us, like as we think of the Trinity, to think a little bit less of like, how do, I, how do I explain that intellectually? And a little bit more about like, how do I understand that relationally? The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And the Spirit 
comes out of that essence, pours out of that essence of that relationship is love. Spirit flows from them in love. There's love that exists between the Father, there's love that exists between the Son, and there's love that exists between them and the Spirit. Like, all of this, John tells us, this is not being, I'm not being sentimental, this is John's argument in his, in his epistle, God is love. That's how he's trying to explain the Trinity. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are love. They're bound in this loving relationship with one another. This is why it's so vitally important for us to honor and worship the Trinity. Because we're, what, we're, what we're realizing is like we were created for love. Like we were created to receive and to give. And so ironically, in some kind of way, as, as we press into love, as we commit to giving better than is deserved, there's something about it that's actually empowering. Like Jesus' point here, when he, when he points out this widow, isn't like, look how much, like, look how bad she's got it. Like, let's feel sorry for her. Rather, he like, like upholds her. He gathers all of his disciples around and says, look, we've been arguing and like we, we haven't read all the discussions, but Jesus has been arguing with the religious leaders and powerful people for chapters and chapters and chapters. Most of them bad faith arguments. The religious leaders coming and saying, let's trap you. Like, let's find a way to like discredit you and disregard you. And after all of these conversations, Jesus says, this one, her, she's figured it out. Come see her. And so, yeah, as we, as we move into, like, love and giving better than is deserved and forgiveness and grace and giving um, more than, like, is deserved, yeah, there's a big part of us that has to do that with a lot of discretion, right? Like, get, like, a good counselor. Get some good counsel around you. Get friends that love you uh, and can help provide support. Like, never go into, like, I'm never, I'll never ever say, go into an unsafe situation. Go into a situation and enable abuser. That's never, ever what I'm going to propose, but that being said, when we can find a way to give that is better than is deserved, it's not disempowering. It's not us being like chumps. It's us actually living into the kingdom. And so the beautiful thing about this, okay, kind of tying everything full circle. I know I make big circles. I'm trying to make smaller circles for you guys. Um, the most beautiful thing about this is that giving better than is deserved is always possible. There's always something that we have that has been given to us by God that we can offer in humility and surrender. Why I think this is so important and why it, like, we need to really, really understand this is because when we love like this, like, we become empowered as people, not disempowered. We actually become who we are, like who God created us to be. And we are more than our woundedness. We're more than the ways that we've been pushed out or dehumanized or victimized. And I know, like, there's real wounds there, and I want us to find, like, healing from those things. But we're more than that. And that's what's happening here is Jesus is pointing out this woman who has every right to probably not even show up there, and instead she's willing to offer everything that she has, and Jesus says, she's figured it out. So, so I think one of the things to understand also about this woman and her heart that's really important here 
um, is for many of us, like what we have, like our wealth and our resources are relative to our perspective. And so it's really easy for us to kind of spiritually barter with God sometimes. You're like, you know what? Am I giving enough? I'm giving more than I should. I'm definitely giving more than so-and-so is. And so we kind of end up in this like spiritual bartering system. And ironically, wealth and resources do something weird to us psychologically. And there's a lot of research to back this up. But like, um, when, you, when you actually ask people, like, n- you've ever known, like, nobody says they're rich. Not even like, and they, like, not even rich people say they're rich. Like, nobody ever goes, yeah, I've, I've got enough resources. We are hardwired to feel like I don't have enough. Like, it's, some, it's a weird psychological effect that even when you look at, like, like suits, I don't even know, watch that show, like, like, when you look at like, people living in high-rises in New York, and I remember in studying this in my social psychology class, I went to a non-Christian university, by the way. We were, ex- we were examining like, the effects of wealth on people. Like, even when you ask like, people at high-rise that own their own jets, like, they're still going, yeah, but I don't own a yacht. I only have the jet. Like, like, there's some real, like, somehow like, our privilege and our wealth blinds us to like, how much we've actually been given. And sometimes it can actually work the opposite. This is why, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Did Outliers. Malcolm Gladwell did a study on this. But there's actually like wealth works as a bell curve. Like it's not linear. It doesn't mean like the more you have, the happier you get. There's actually a peak. And then if you continue to make money after that, like the happiness level goes down. And so ironically enough, our wealth sometimes actually disempowers us in some kind of way. So when Jesus is pointing out this woman who's giving everything that she has, she's coming from a place not of, like, privilege, nor is she actually coming from a place of, like, victimhood and, like, feel sorry for me. She's coming from this place of empowerment and of humility. This is what I've been given, so this is what I can offer. And it's important for us to do this with our money. And I'm not going to ask for money in the sermon. Like, I, 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 never, like, I never ask for money on sermons where I preach about money. Like, it just feels weird to me to do that. Um, maybe I'll do that in the future. But not today. Like, that's not what, not what we're doing. Uh, my point is here is for us to really see that oftentimes, like, the, the things that we've been given, like, we can lose sight of that either because we become so, like, wrapped up in our own, like, victimhood or we become so wrapped up in our privilege that like we end up like actually disempowered. And the way to actual like real empowerment, real like kingdom ethics, real kingdom living is right in the middle there of being able to offer what it is that we have. The only way that this can happen is if we give, um, if we commit to giving better than is deserved, but also we resolve ourselves to not feeling shame but not being able to look at somebody else and go, well, they're giving more so I don't matter. Nor is it to be able to look at somebody and go, I'm giving less so I don't matter. But it's that self-acceptance piece of knowing that Jesus has loved us fully just as we are to say I'm giving what he's given me. The reason I want to use the term gratuitous God uh, is I think there's something about this um, that's important for us to see. So when, when God gives better than he deserves and we live into that as people who are created in his image, 
what we began to realize is that all we have is always God's anyway. Like that he has given us out of abundance. So when we offer mercy, when we offer compassion, when we offer forgiveness, all we are actually doing is re-offering what God has given in the first place. When we do this with our spouse, when we do this with our coworkers, when we do this with our siblings, when we do this with our parents, and all of those who may have let us down, wounded us, disillusioned us, what we're really doing is we're living into who God created us giving only what God has already given us that doesn't belong to us anyway. This is why Revelation, at the very end of your Bible, those who follow Jesus are sort of described as these trees that live right next to a river. And, and they get their source of life from the river so that everyone else around them can come and feast off their fruit. There's actually this like flowing analogy of like God's goodness comes to the tree, we being the trees. Like people are often compared to trees in the Bible. And as, as those trees soak up the goodness of God, soak up the mercy of God, soak up the extravagant, gratuitous, like love of God, and as they bear fruit in their lives, others come and participate in that fruit. They get to eat of that fruit. Like this is like the dominating kind of motif of like what it means to be a Christian through all of eternity. It's like this absorb, like taking in of God's life and his goodness and then being just like him, spreading it and sharing it with those around us. And so as we close this morning, um, I want to offer just a few practical advice, like practical things that aren't quite in the text, like it, it, but it's along the lines of what we're, what we're doing this morning. So, uh, questions that um, we sometimes have is like, okay, well, how do, I, how do I really forgive? Like, I don't know if I'm ready to. Like, I don't know if I'm ready to, like, give out of abundance of goodness. Ironically, I think that the place that we actually can bring ourselves to to be able to do that is through our own healing. It's much, it's, it's easier, it's more possible to forgive when we've actually found real healing from our own woundedness first. And so there's, a, there, there's like some, um, in, in this kind of way, like oh, we're always right, kind of going back to our original fears of like what happens to me if I start living like this? Ironically, like the first thing that needs to happen is like you need to be whole. I remember that like really learning this kind of firsthand through my own journey is like as I got into counseling, I had a really gifted counselor who walked with me for about a year. And as I began to like really heal from some of my own wounds, I found it actually easier, sometimes even more joyful, to forgive those who had created the wound in the first place. But that like, that like healing has to take place first. And so ironically, like as we're thinking of giving away, like there's also a part of us that like as we pour into ourselves, we're able to do that well. And so my first, like, my first just practical advice for us as we're like wrestling with as a church um, and I'm like grateful for the way that so many of you guys have wrestled with me this week over this, like, is like, let's find, like, find healing. Like, ironically enough, as we find that healing, we find ourselves and our hearts less resistant to the idea of like mercy and showing mercy and giving of ourselves. Another quick practical thing about how grace works. Um, so, so sometimes we struggle. So I, I'm convinced that our deepest wounds and our biggest wounds often come from people who have wounded us who will yet or may never acknowledge the wound. They're like, ah, like, well, not my fault. Or they just don't think there's anything wrong, 
right? And this, this is hard because a lot of our family relationships kind of operate this way. Um, right? Not knocking on family, not ragging on family, but like many of our, like oftentimes our sources of woundedness can come from spouses, fathers, mothers, parents, siblings. Like, like there's real like, hey, I don't, I don't really see everything I've done. I'm not really interested in, in acknowledging it. And so like what, what's hard for us sometimes is like, what do I do with grace in that situation? Especially I got to see the person on Thanksgiving and on Christmas. Like, like that, like as I've only, I haven't been a pastor that long, but I am like the most anxiety provoking times that I'm realizing for people starts in about a month. And it starts because you guys are like, I'm going to go see this person and I've got so many things. And it's like, we're going to share a turkey and then they're going to have a couple glasses of wine. And then, like, that's how, like, this starts again. Or, like, it genuinely, like, I'm convinced holiday seasons are, like, anxiety-provoking. I remember when I was a counselor, like, we beefed up, like, our services that were available to our clients starting in October because everybody's, like, going back into these situations. They're like, well, I don't know. So one just practical thing to think about as we think about grace is grace works as a powerful, life-changing thing only if it makes it all the way to the other person. And what I mean by that is sometimes people refuse and grace gets stuck in the middle, like a package that's lost in the mail. Yes, you can change the life of someone who's wronged you by forgiving them, but that forgiveness has to make it all the way over. So, so our, our modern narratives of forgiveness, and this is actually one of the reasons I moved away from mental health and into to pastoral ministry, um, is so many of our modern kind of narratives on forgiveness uh, have to do, like, with us, still kind of at the center. Like, forgiveness is this, like, like, I had a lot of bitterness and I released it. That's good and healthy. Do that. Like, find a counselor that helps you do that. But that's not actually forgiveness. That's, that's, like, that's emotional healing, and that's good. But forgiveness is actually a transaction. It's when you go, you have wronged me, and the person goes, I have wronged you, and you go, but I'm not going to hold it against you. This is why I believe that people can stay active in their rebellion towards God's love for them. He's offering, they're just not receiving. And so in these situations when we offer, but it's not received, like those get more complex. And those are the kinds of things that we need to work through together with our pastors, with our counselors, with our friends. But lastly, and I'll say this and I'll close this morning. I'm being practical this morning, but I think it's worth us wrestling with some of these practicalities is what happens if I do like I just know grandma's never going to change like grandpa's just never going to change and you're right like there are like situations where the person will just not change so what do we do in that kind of situation like how do I give like better than they deserve in that kind of situation well my approach to that is, is always this. It's like, okay, if they're dehumanizing or they're being actively abusive, we never put ourselves in that situation. We never love an abuser well by allowing them to actively abuse us. We have to pull that. Like, they're locked in their own prison. We have to pull back. After that, I think of it often as just like, uh, like palliative care. Like, it's, look, you're never going to change your mind. There's nothing that, like, uh, like I can really convince you. So for, as best as I can and in every way that I can, let me protect your dignity and make you as comfortable as possible and then surrender you to the love of God, which inevitably you're going to have a powerful interaction with. Right, like, like it's, it's actual, like, like I think of it generally in hospice care. It's like, like there's what's happening now, what's been set in motion cannot change. But that doesn't mean that I can't protect your dignity care for you 
love you even in this. And yeah, like that's complicated and I have to find ways to do that. But the goal in these kinds of situations is let me figure out like how do I not shame you as much as like if there's not going to be change, like I want to make sure that like you're safe and people around you are safe. Like if I got to think about boundaries for you or boundaries for my kids or things like that, like let's think through that. But then after, like what can I do to like honor your dignity, even in, even in like your undignified states, even when you say the most offensive things at the table, or like you, you hang on to like your unhealthy behavior and these undignified states, how can I protect your dignity? How can I be good to you? How can I make you comfortable? Even in this space. And again, like there's some real like think through the implications of that and never go into situations that further dehumanist. That's not what I'm proposing. But I am proposing that in every situation, giving what we have, what we can offer is always possible. It's always available. This is the beautiful, empowering thing about love, is that when we choose love, we're never truly victims. We're never truly disempowered. We actually have the option to live and be just like Jesus in all of these moments. This is what this woman does here. This is what I want us to commit to as a church. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, would you help us? Would you help me? Would you help us as a church in all the ways that we um, struggle to give better than is deserved? Um, for all the ways that we struggle with love? For all the ways that we struggle to feel accepted? I feel that we're enough. Father, some of us have an abundance of time, and so we can give time. Some of us have almost no time between the pressures of work and family. And so just showing up on a Sunday is about all we can give right now. For both of us, for whether we have an extravagance of wealth, and you've blessed us far beyond what we actually thought we'd ever have, or whether we're still living in food insecurity and uncertain where we're going to pay our rent and our food over the next month. Would you help us to offer what we have, what we can give, to not be wrapped up in the shame that we're not giving enough or that we should be giving more, but discover with you who we are, that we're enough, how to give enough. We love you, Father. We need help loving you, though. Help us to love one another. We need help with that too. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.